One of the things that really helped me when I first started photography is more or less mirroring after other photographers, especially when it comes to gear. It's a big world of accessories and lenses and cameras and all the different options out there. And it's really hard to do your own independent research from scratch. So today's episode is dedicated to basically deep diving into my own camera kit. I'm going to be going through absolutely every piece of gear that I own with a little bit of dialogue and when and how I use it. And the idea is not whatsoever to sell you on my individual pieces of gear, whether it be a lens or a camera body or a tripod, but more to get you to understand why I use it and what are the merits, what are the components of each of these that make a big difference to my photography for you to learn about your own gear or maybe gear that you may wish to acquire one day. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is my deep dive into my camera bag. the first thing I've got to start with, of course, is going to be my camera body itself. So I have long used a DSLR camera body, but I've recently switched to a mirrorless camera body. Now, a lot of cameras these days are mirrorless. So when I say mirrorless, it's basically a mirrorless version of the DSLRs in that it is a fancy camera body that you can change lenses for and get great results. Um, I have always been a Canon guy. Um, I just started with Canon ever since my very first camera, just out of happenstance, and have always evolved throughout the years with Canon bodies, uh, Canon lenses, pretty much everything Canon. Uh, I, I don't know why it started off that way, but I can say I've, I've always been happy with it. I've always been impressed and I've never swayed from it. So I do recommend Canon. I think they're a great outfit, but of course there are many great camera manufacturers today. Uh, but nevertheless, mirrorless camera body. Um, it's the R5 and it is a full frame camera body. And this, this is the most important factor here. Uh, full frame opposed to crop frame. If you don't know what that means, usually that means you're probably shooting on what's called a crop frame sensor. It's a slightly smaller sensor. Think of the sensor as like the film processor. Um, today with digital, it is a little sensor that perceives and reads and stores and basically compresses your image onto the file storage system, your memory card. But basically, a smaller sensor means a couple things. One is it means it's a little bit less expensive to make. It's a little bit smaller, so the rest of the camera can usually be smaller as well. In addition, because it's a smaller sensor, the lens is positioned at a different length away from that sensor compared to a full frame. That has big ramifications in the sense that there are some lenses that will only work for crop frame bodies versus full frame because of the technology needed you can kind of get away with a smaller, lighter, cheaper lens, usually with crop frames. So sometimes manufacturers will make lenses that are specially suited to crop frame sensors. Um, crop frame is usually akin to uh, a little bit more on the intro models. The biggest thing to me is that it holds fewer megapixels and it does not respond to the low light conditions as good. Uh, with full frame bodies, full frame sensors, you can really push that ISO and it allows you to shoot in significantly lower light conditions while also picking up more megapixels, which 
essentially means a, a better quality shot. Uh, it also means you can crop that photo a little bit more and still retain the resolution. So when we talk about full frame bodies, that's basically like a more pro level camera system, but it does cost you in terms of money, weight, size, all that sort of stuff. But nevertheless, full frame camera body is something that I switched to back in whew, 2009, 10, something like that. And I've never gone back. Uh, the one interesting loss that you have with switching from crop frame to full frame is usually with crop frame sensors, you actually get more magnification power on your lenses. For Canon, I know it's a 1.6, I think, a 1.6 crop factor. On Nikon, that's, that small sensor gives you a 1.4 crop factor. And what that means is if you have a telephoto lens of like 100 millimeter and you use it on a crop frame sensor, so Canon being 1.6, that's actually the equivalent of a 160 millimeter lens. So this actually has a big advantage in the world of sports and wildlife photography where you want more telephoto. Now in landscape photography, it's a little bit worse because technically you want a wider end of the spectrum. And sometimes if you're shooting with say like a 24 millimeter uh, on a crop frame sensor, that's going to be more like a 30, 32, 34 millimeter. And you just don't have the edges. You don't have that wide angle look. So as a result for crop sensors, you got to get wider and wider and wider, but you do have that awesome benefit of getting more telephoto power for the same lens. So it's not all a loss. Um, it's, there's definitely some benefits. A lot of sports photographers I know do have, uh, in their kit, a crop frame sensor because it buys them that extra telephoto length just automatically very easily. So, uh, yeah, my camera body, it is a full frame mirrorless Canon. Boom. I love that. Um, Fun fact, I do not have a second camera body at the moment. It's something that you might hear me advocate for, for certain places around the world. Uh, the lack of second camera body is not because I wouldn't use it ever or I don't want it. It's mainly that when I'm out on my photo trips, 90 to 95% of the time I am guiding and I'm very immersed in helping my guests find better shots, the right shot, giving them tips and tricks. So yes, I am photographing. Yes, I'm shooting alongside them to, to look at my settings and to shout those out and have people mirror them. But I am not fervently getting every possible shot I can, doubling the number of shots by having two camera bodies. So as a result, the money I would put into two camera bodies, I usually put into just the one and get a little bit better camera body, maybe a little bit better lens because I want to go slightly lighter and more minimalist in my setup because I am indeed helping other people and immersed in other people's photography as much as my own when I'm out in the field. So for lenses, uh, let's start off with big telephoto zoom lens. So I have Canon's 100 to 500. It's an f4.5 to 7.1. Uh, this is a new lens for me. I've been shooting on their 100 to 400 Mark II for, for many years. Before that, I was with their 100 to 400 Mark I. So I've always had a lens in that range, and I've always really, really loved it. Some people will ask, well, don't you ever want to shoot with a big prime lens with all the wildlife and safari photography you do? Prime being something that doesn't zoom. It's just fixed at like 300, 400, or 500 millimeters. And yes, there are definitely advantages to having one of those big beefy lenses out there in the field. Um, one of the 
primary ones is just quality. Those lenses are such good quality that you can crop in after the fact. You can shoot in low light. They usually have pretty big apertures like f2.8, f4, and that is dreamy for creating a beautiful blur in the background, for shooting fast, and just getting great quality wildlife portraits and great wildlife shots in general. Uh, the downsides are that they're usually extraordinarily big. You know, the 100 to 500 that I have is pretty darn big. These other lenses are even bigger. They're they're wider, they're girthier, they're just huge bazookas out there. And again, because I'm guiding most of the time, I don't want to have that big lens next to people as I'm coaching them on shooting. But that's not the only reason. The the real reason that is that I genuinely love to be a little bit lighter a little bit more versatile. I really like having that zoom range. I like being able to shoot at 400 and now 500 one second and then zooming out, going wide and being able to shoot more of a landscape shot with wildlife in it at that 100 and 200 range. So I really, really covet and appreciate. I love the ability and flexibility that the zooms give me with my telephoto lenses. You know, the 4.5 F 4.5 to F 7.1, it's, you know, I would prefer an F4 throughout, not going to lie. Uh, if, if such a lens ever becomes available, I would heavily consider it. Canon did come out with a 200 to 400 F4 throughout several years ago. And it's another one of those bazookas. It's big. It's also expensive. You know, we're talking about like a 10 to $12,000 lens, which is uh, a tad more than my 100 to 500. So again, not, not something that I bring with me, not something I've acquired over the years, but nevertheless, it is an option out there, but it's just personally not for me. So the 100 to 500 really covers my entire telephoto and zoom range. Um, I do not currently have a 70 to 200. Now, I love that lens. I really, really do. Um, I advocate for it a lot, the 70-200 f2.8. That is a lens category that every single camera manufacturer has, and it is phenomenal. It's it's a great, great lens. Um, it's very good for specific wildlife settings. You'll often hear me tout it for safari photography, for gorilla photography, um, especially people portraits, uh, community photography, travel photography, and even some bear photography because the bigger animal allows you to use 200 and then that f2.8 just gives you that extraordinary bouquet uh, or bokeh depending on <laughs> how you pronounce it. little tomato tomato there. Um, but nevertheless, I don't have one because I I end up really preferring the 100 to 500 range and to bring two beefy lenses like that on most trips, it's it's not my choice as a as a second lens or really as a fourth or a fifth lens to be honest because as you'll hear in this lineup that I go through some of these other lenses that I have um I personally enjoy and use a lot more. So let's get to those. So the the next lens which is indispensable of course is my quote unquote walking around lens. It's a 24 to 105. Um, this is an extraordinary lens. It's F4 throughout. That's a really great aperture. It is heavily image stabilized as is the 100 to 500, but heavily image stabilized, very, very good quality. It is the new mirrorless versions, the R lens that Canon makes. And it's just a workhorse. It's what I use for anything landscape, just about anything people. I can even use it under macro settings and zoom all the way in and get to that minimum focusing distance to get really, really close to things like butterflies and beetles and other insects. 
Um, it's a great lens. I use it for landscape photography, travel, gosh, you name it. Um, so that 100% comes with me. It's also a great video lens. I do a lot of videography work too, and it is um, superb for that as well. So th those two lenses, the 24-105 and 100-500, I don't think I ever leave home without both of those. So now the third lens that I usually consider bringing with me is going to be my ultra wide. It's my 16 to 35 millimeter. This is an f 2.8. So this, this lens has wide ranging applications for very specific jobs, very specific needs with photography. And if I have the room in the space beyond my 24 to 105 and 100 to 500, I'm going to probably bring this one next. So an ultra wide is great for general travel photography. You're getting in tight places like vehicles and, and lodge hotel rooms. Um, you know, you want to shoot really, really unique scenes with big skies for things like Northern lights or astrophotography, especially when you need that fast aperture. Um, so the 16 to 35, this ultra wide angle is going to give me a little bit of kind of like an X factor vibe. You'll hear me talk about X factor lenses sometimes. And this is, it's, it's a lens that you don't absolutely have to have. You can probably shoot 95% of the trip without this, but for those 5% of shots, when you do use it, it's going to give you a look and a feel that you just can't achieve anywhere else. And frankly, usually people like the look so much. They like using this lens so much that they end up using it for more than 5% of their shots. Um, you just sort of encroach on what you would otherwise be shooting. And therefore, you know, you, you end up taking I don't know, 10%, 15% of your time using this lens. But it's a great lens. It's fast. It's creative. It's interesting. And it does something that no other lens can do, which is get you into those really close settings and that very, very wide angle look. So the next lens, which is a very, very close fourth place, it's usually a third or fourth place. But the reason it often makes its way in the camera bag with me is because it's small. It's my nifty 50. It's my 50 millimeter one, uh, f 1.4. And it's such a great lens. 50 millimeter is nothing to write home about. It's a very average focal length. It's not great for landscapes. It's not really great for wildlife, but it is good for people and travel and just general stuff. The, what makes it so great is not the 50 millimeters. That's boring. That's just incidental. Like you, you have to get 50. Okay. I'll take it. What makes it so great is that it's F 1.4. Um, now it's a 50 millimeter, so it's prime. I can't zoom in, zoom out. I have to move if I want a different composition or crop after the fact, which is probably what happens most of the time. But basically that F 1.4 gives you that extraordinarily shallow depth of field that can turn photos of doorknobs into works of art. And that's exactly what I use it for is things like railings and wooden doors and door latches and, and ship instruments and just interesting travel stuff, um, souvenir stands and fruit and markets and vegetables. It starts to look really, really good when you have this very, very shallow depth of field. And the thing is, is it's the size of like half a Coke can. So it, it, it can fit in any camera bag with any weight allowance because it's small, it's lightweight. It almost always comes with me because it's going to give me a, a couple cool shots, many 
perhaps many cool shots that I wouldn't otherwise be able to get because of that aperture. So that's kind of another X factor lens for me. So that's my core setup. And those are the four lenses that I consider each and every trip. Uh, the first two I mentioned, I don't really, I don't consider, they just make it in there. And it's that, that ultra wide and nifty 50 that are the considerations as to which one or both are my X factor lenses. But I, I don't stop there. I do have other lenses out there. Um, the predominant one that I bring with me on very specific trips is me my macro lens. I have a hundred millimeter macro, um, macro. You can listen to one of my other podcasts for a full definition of what macro really means. But the gist is it makes really small things appear really big in the frame through magnification and an extraordinary minimum focusing distance, Uh, much more so than just using a telephoto and getting close, much more so than using the 24 to 105 and getting close. It, It makes things big. So it's really cool. It's really fun. But for very specific stuff, like I would, you know, if I'm going to bring it on a trip, it's because I'm anticipating extraordinary caterpillars and beetles and butterflies. So when I'm thinking about trips to places like, I don't know, Borneo, Madagascar, Costa Rica, even Galapagos Islands, places that have really great, unique critters that are small and somewhat approachable, my macro often becomes maybe my my third or fourth lens. It, it kind of gets into the ranking of like the the ultra wide angle and nifty 50, like, yeah, I should probably bring this. Now, the other downside or the only downside or a downside of the macro lens is that to do good macro photography, you have to have a macro flash. You don't really do great photography um, if you're not using that flash because that flash enables an extraordinary depth of field. Um, Unlike the Nifty 50 where that shallow depth of field makes it so interesting, macro, I think one of the most interesting things there is a very, very wide depth of field, meaning you're shooting small stuff at like F11, F16, maybe even higher and making this small little tortoise beetle like bigger than life size, you know, huge impression in the photo and extremely textured and extremely sharp all around. Because remember, when you're putting, you know, when you're filling the frame with a single critter, and I talk about this with bears and other big animals, if you're doing edge-to-edge composition with anything, you have to treat that like a landscape photo. And even though you think, well, why would I need F8 or F11 or F16 for a small little butterfly? Well, if you're putting it edge-to-edge in your composition, that the ratio of your frame is what dictates how much of aperture. So if you want the front and the back and the left and the right of the frame in focus, you got to use a big aperture. So what that means is to get those F16 type apertures, you have to have artificial lighting. uh, And that's where the flash comes in. So then all of a sudden, the choice to bring a macro is not just simply, should I bring this Coke can size lens that's a little bit heavy because it's usually F2.8 and there's a lot of glass in there. But it's also, do you bring a flash as well? And and you really should if you want to make use of that lens properly. So all of a sudden, it's two things you got to bring. The flash is even bigger and more awkward and heavier. And, you know, it's it's a consideration. Um, So from there, let's talk about the other stuff that my camera kit might have in it. Well, so batteries. This is a little bit of a boring one, but I want to tell you just very verbatim, I bring four batteries with me for every trip. And I have a great little battery case from a company called Peter McKinnon. Um, And it seems pretty simple, but it's a little pouch case with, with a magnetic clip. They even give you little labels for the batteries that allow you to turn them upside down in the case and display whether they're charged or uncharged. So that way, when you get back to your hotel room or lodge at night, 
you know instantly which batteries need charging. But four batteries, I find it's about the sweet spot. Anything more, and I'm usually not even touching the fourth battery or the fifth battery, but I do go through a couple batteries in a, in a certain day. If I'm shooting a lot of video, it might be three even four batteries. So batteries are a key thing. Cold conditions, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why batteries can get zapped out when you're doing travel, nature, wildlife, photography. So four is my sweet spot. Uh, so camera straps. Okay, so this, we're getting kind of nerdy here, but camera straps, like the thing that goes around your neck, is actually pretty important. So most cameras, especially the good ones, the fancier ones, do come with a default strap. And they're kind of cool because if you have a big fancy camera, they say, you know, Canon, it's the R5 or the EOS 1 or, you know, whatever awesome camera you have, it's kind of a little bit of a, a marking, a little bit of a branding. It's kind of cool to, to wear that on your sleeve, so to speak. Um, however, those straps suck. Uh, they're not good straps. They offer no padding. They offer very little weight distribution. They're hard to take on and take off. There's almost no merits other than the fact that they're free and come with a camera. So I, I have two different straps, and I like both. Um, I wish there was some sort of perfect in-the-middle-between balance of, of these two straps, but I'll tell you why I like uh, each. So one strap is made by Optech, O-P-Tech, uh, T-E-C-H. And it, it's like, it's like a neoprene, almost like a wetsuit material that is sort of thick and it's, it's quite padded, but it's also very thin where the straps actually connect to the camera. So it's small, it's lightweight, it's minimalist, it's not big and honky, but where it goes around your neck or your shoulder has this nice neoprene padding. And I'll tell you, when you're lugging around a 100 to 500 lens and you'll, you know, five, 10 pounds around your neck through the jungles, trekking, doing whatever you're doing all day, that padding makes a huge difference. I heard somewhere that the padding is the equivalent of like distributing the weight or lessening the weight, lessening the perceived weight by 50%. And that's crazy. Like, you know, if you were carrying around a camera that's 10 pounds, it makes it feel like it's five pounds is what that statement's saying. And uh, although I've never done any like torque tests, you know, with a, with a weight and like perceived feeling and all that, I can tell you it, it feels that way. Like it feels a lot lighter. So I love it for that. The only downside of this strap is that it doesn't go on and off my camera very easily. And there are a lot of times when I don't want to strap on my camera. Uh, it might be when I am doing videography. I just don't want something in the way. It might be when I'm bringing my camera to dinner or to the lodge to download photos at night. Uh, I just don't want something extra. And so the second strap is fantastic. It's made by a company called Peak Design, P-E-A-K Design, two words. And they they are crushing it in the camera accessory world. I highly recommend anything they produce. I have a number of things from them and they all blow away my expectations. Um, but basically this strap has a really ingenious little engineered way to clip and unclip from your camera using a little circular knob. And I'll let you look at it online if you're really interested. But basically it's a very, very easy way to clip on and clip off. Uh, in addition, it makes it really, really easy through a latch system on the strap itself to lengthen and shorten the strap. And this is quite helpful depending on how you want to carry it, whether it's for the day, for the trip. Sometimes when I am doing videography and I need a really, really stable hold on my camera, I'll use a strap and extend it away from my neck. So that's like a third point of contact, with my two hands being the other two points of contact. 
And having a short strap allows me to pull tight and almost acts like a little stabilizer. However, if I'm then carrying it for the next two miles to the next viewpoint or to the next wildlife sighting, I want that strap to be longer. And so instantly with that strap adjustment, very, very well engineered strap adjustment, I can lengthen it and be on my way. So peak design, super good strap. So let's get to tripods. I have I have two, well actually technically I have three different tripods, but two main full-size ones. One is by a company called Manfrotto. Um, I bought this tripod way back in the day of graduate school and I sprang for one of the best. It's carbon fiber, it's lightweight, it is just phenomenal. And at the time, you know, this $450 tripod as a grad student was like, you know, two months salary, basically, it was either, you know, I either bought this or a wedding ring for my my girlfriend at the time. So it was, it was a big investment. However, I still have it today, I still use it all the time, it still works awesome. And, you know, 20 years later, this tripod is, is paying for itself over and over and over again. So there's a bit of a advice there that, you know, invest in the good stuff, right off the bat. That way you're not buying something cheap to begin with, using it for a few years, realizing that you want to get something better and then springing for the good thing. And all of a sudden you had those wasted years where you didn't have the good thing that was easier and sturdier and better and lighter weight and came with you in more adventures and got you to take more and better photos. So I do recommend if you're going to go for a tripod, uh, if that's something you want to invest in, try to get something on the pretty decent end. And I think that once you start getting into the carbon fiber world, like around three, $400, there are a few different brands out there that are really, really, really good. And they're getting smaller and lighter weight and better engineered all the time. Another company, surprise, surprise, Peak Design, when we're talking about engineering, they are phenomenal engineers and they have engineered an extraordinary travel tripod. I am really, really dubious and very particular about travel tripods. This first one I was talking about, it's small and lightweight, but it's it's not a travel tripod. I see these out there. I see them from the camera stores. I see them from my guests. Usually the travel tripods, they're around 100 bucks. They're small, they're lightweight, but A, they're really flimsy. They're not sturdy. And B, they are like hard to use like the way that the clasps and the rings and the snaps work to get the legs to extend and hold into place they're just faulty so i don't know about that this this peak design one um blows away all my expectations as i kind of thought it would <laughs> and it is extraordinary it's carbon fiber it packs into uh what is almost the size of a paper towel roll like not the whole roll but just the 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 middle of a paper towel like the car- cardboard and it now comes with me on virtually every trip, even when I don't plan or don't know or don't think I'm going to use a tripod because it's so small, so lightweight. And that carbon fiber not only is small, lightweight, and great to pack and easy to use, but there is a little bit of added benefit that carbon fiber, you may know this if you have anything else carbon fiber, whether it's like trekking poles or even bicycle forks, that sort of thing, is that it does absorb some vibration. And so I think that's especially important in the world of tripods, because if you do have any vibration coming from the ground, from stepping near the tripod, or if you are on a moving vehicle, like on a big expedition yacht or anything, uh, having that dampening, even even if it's minuscule, does make quite a big difference when you're talking about long exposures with a tripod. So yeah, two tripods I love. They're great. Um, ball heads to each. So let's talk about those because really the legs of a tripod is quite different from the head of a tripod. Uh, the legs of this tripod, the first one, the Manfrotto carbon fiber, the head is what's known as a pistol grip ball head. 
Uh, I'm not going to spend minutes explaining exactly what that looks like, but it looks like something with a handle, um, kind of like a pistol that you can hold and grip with one hand. You squeeze the grip and it loosens the ball head so you can rotate the camera around in any which way and you release it and the camera is locked into place. This is very, very similar to a normal ball head, but it only requires one hand for operation. And this is a pretty big deal, especially when you're in compromising positions in the frozen Arctic, you know, being patient and looking for wildlife. Being able to operate your ball head with just one hand is is kind of a big deal. So I love that. And then the Peak Design one is a very similar ball head. It's not it's not one-handed, it's two-handed, but it's a very, very easy two-handed ball head that comes with the tripod. It's not sold separately because it fits so well into their minimal design. So that, that's a great one. And then the third tripod I mentioned I have is just, it's kind of like a little dinky gorilla pod. It's not their biggest and their best. It's something that holds my camera, but it's actually mostly for my GoPro and for smaller cameras that I've had throughout the years. But I do like the gorilla pod concept. Um, they're not super duper easy to use if you've never used one. Um, you know, their, their legs are very articulated such that you have to do a lot of bending and molding to get them to tripod out into three distinct legs to support itself. But if you couple that with a little ball head on top, you can usually level it pretty well. And it has come in pretty clutch in certain situations, especially in areas where you can't easily bring tripods, like the platform of Brooks Falls, Alaska comes to mind. You are not allowed to have a full-size tripod out there. So sometimes I bring that small little gorilla pod, and it's really not a tripod per se, because it can just sit on the railing. And that allows me to get those long exposure, silky photos of the water, the waterfall of Brooks Falls with the bears on top and the salmon and all that. It's, it's pretty great. So very convenient. So those are tripods. As far as camera bags, I, I just did a whole section, a whole podcast on what is the perfect camera bag. Um, so I'm going to let you listen to that whole explanation because the short answer is there is a perfect camera bag, but it depends on the trip, depends on the person, depends on your gear. And so I have several. I'll tell you right now, the camera bag that I'm using most often because it's kind of the biggest, it's the newest, it's the most sturdy, it's the most I'm, I'm impressed with it the most is Peak Design. It's the Peak Design 30 to 45 liter. It's it's expandable or more uh, correctly, it's it's contractable. It starts off as 45 liters and there's ways you can cinch it down to be a little bit more smaller profile design. And yeah, Peak Design, it's really, really great. It is a nice backpack to begin with. So it's not one of these camera bags where it's camera bag first and backpack second, it's it's found a really good balance of 50-50. Like I could use this as a backpack for anything else and not have a single bit of camera gear in there and it would still make a lot of sense. It just also so happens to have camera pockets and pouches that you can add in there that house and secure your gear and uh, organize your gear very, very, very well. Okay, so we talked about the macro flash that goes along with a macro setup. Uh, I also have a shoe-mounted flash that I'll be honest, I do not use very often anymore. But since we are doing a deep dive into my entire camera kit, I figured I'd mention it. It is the Canon Speedlight 580 Mark II. Um, and this is kind of your classic shoe-mounted flash. It's, it's what you would see like a wedding photographer have. It sticks up above the camera. Um, it's It's really, I gotta say, if you're 
thinking about getting into macro photography and you're not sure if you want a macro flash, you're not sure if you want a flash for other things, this is a great multi-purpose flash. There's ways you can orient it to actually have the flash bounce down versus out, which is great for macro. You can have the flash bounce up. You can do all sorts of creative photography things. So it is a great flash, honestly, for, for nature and wildlife photography um, outside of rainforests and with with animals that are kind of finicky and that you don't want to blast with flash all the time, which is most wildlife, um, you just don't need or want a flash. It does add a very unnatural look. So I pretty much reserve my flash photography to macro these days or with people in portrait photography, but I don't do a lot of that anyway. So yeah, flash, not a huge thing, but nevertheless, something to, to think about and something for me to tell you about as far as my camera kit goes. Filters. So filters are something that's kind of a thing of the past, but there still are a few things that make sense. One is a polarizing filter. I'd say a lot of you in the audience have considered or have a polarizing filter. Um, here's my advice. If you don't have one and you've got a little bit of extra money, you know, $100 or less, and really have it burning a hole in your pocket and want to experiment with the polarizing filter, they're great. Go for a B&W brand, B ampersand W. Um, they're going to be kind of like your higher middle of the road. Um, there are some really nice ones out there by like Singray and um, some other brands, but B&W will run you about $100. And uh, if, if you... Don't feel like that's worth it. There's Hoya, H-O-Y-A. There's Tiffin, um, kind of going down and lesser and lesser quality there. Um, but you know, between sixty and hundred dollars should get you a pretty good polarizing filter. Be careful spending too cheap of, or too little money because you know you are putting an element between you and your photography. You don't you don't want that glass to be bad um, or not transmit enough light. But polarizers, I've found you can get away without using them yet duplicate or replicate their effect pretty easily through Photoshop and Lightroom just by decreasing the blue luminance slider under the color mixer, I believe it is. So yeah, you can decrease the blue luminance. It does a lot of what a polarizer is going to do for popping blue skies and popping clouds and making really great landscape photos. The one thing it's not going to do, the one thing that the filter itself is, is a must for is reducing glare off of surfaces. And that's the real, I guess, point of a polarizer in the first place. But, you know, you can't do that without having a polarizing lens. So if you are photographing on the water a lot, if you are photographing a lot of reflective material, it is worth considering bringing and having one of those. Just be careful because if you are shooting in low light conditions, you are absolutely putting a tinting filter between you and your subject or you and your scene. So it's, it's not, you know, there, there are cons with the pros here. Uh, but nevertheless, I have a B and W polarizing filter. Um, and yeah, I use it sometimes. Uh, the other filter that I use a little bit more than sometimes, um, in general, it's still only a fraction of a percent of my overall photography, but I use it almost all the time when I'm photographing long exposures of moving water. And that is a neutral density filter, uh, an ND as it's called. Uh, ND filters are great. They are sort of indispensable. Um, they are still very, very relevant because they limit the amount of light getting in your scene. And it's really important when you're trying to do slow shutters of daytime things, because in the middle of the day, there's just so much light that if you have an open shutter for like one or two seconds, it's going to blow out your photo. Your aperture can't close down enough to limit that light. So as a result, 
you know, you, you have to somehow manually reduce the amount of light. There's a very big, significant application in the world of videography with ND filters as well, because oftentimes videographers will want to shoot at very wide open apertures like f2.8 to, to get that beautiful blur but they're doing that in midday. So when you have your aperture all the way open in midday, the light is just pouring in. So as a result, you have to manually decrease the amount of light getting through your lens into your camera sensor. And that's done by these, these ND filters, these neutral density filters. They're actually pretty nifty. They're, they're significantly less expensive because there's not a whole lot of tech involved in them, but still to get good glass, you're, you're talking about, you know, pretty hefty double digits, like 60, 70, $80. Some of the really nice ones will cost you, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I guess you could kind of say you get what you pay for when it comes to the glass quality and the lens quality of these filters. But honestly, I think once you get beyond the $60, $100 level, it's pretty diminishing returns. Um, okay, so beyond filters, what else we got going on? Well, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about keeping your lens clean, um, the tip of your lens, you know, your actual glass surface. And there's two ways to do this. One is make sure you always have a lens hood on your lens. And uh, a lot of the pro level lenses will come with these. Um, a lot of those introductory ones will not, but you can buy one for 30 or $40. And I find that just having a lens hood on will keep the surface of your glass much, much cleaner from, you know, dust or any sort of water or anything going on. I think it's worth it because a clean lens is really paramount to great photography. The other thing you can do is make sure you always have a great lens cloth with you. Um, I have a lens cloth plus a little cleaning solution kit. Usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll blow the lens just to get any big dust off so I'm not rubbing the dust into the lens. Then I take a dry cloth and wipe the lens down and then I will give a couple spritzes of the spray onto the cloth itself. I don't spray the lens but spray the cloth. That way it wipes off any sort of grease from the lens and I usually get a really, really great service and keep it clean for as long as you can. I will throw in my bag what's called a lens pen. Um, they often come free with little camera kits or they're novelty items you can get at the cash register of camera stores for 4 or $5. It's basically a pen with a little retractable brush, but the brush is really, really soft and it's not going to damage your lens. I use that brush to, uh, if I have like big debris on my lens, like let's say I am in a dusty safari vehicle, um, I'll use that pen, that brush from the lens pen to, to dust off any dust from the lens itself. And then I'll also use it to dust off any debris or whatever from the camera itself. Because oftentimes dust, even though these cameras are weather sealed, it can get down into the little crevices and create a little bit of a problem. So I want to make sure that I have some way to get that off. Before I had this little lens pen, I was actually just using an old toothbrush. Uh, I just cut half the handle off the toothbrush so I would remember not to use it. And I would use it to brush off the dust from my camera itself. And I found that that really helped preventing dust from getting inside the camera workings and creating real deal problems. So next we're going to get into a little bit of like the post processing or the post photography world. I want to talk about what I use for my storage. Um, I have some pretty significant camera storage drives. Um, I have two eight terabyte drives that are redundant that basically mirror one another. They're from Western Digital. And I use a pro-grade memory card downloader. And I have to admit, uh, getting a memory card 
adapter or downloader, you know, like the little thing that you put your memory card in and plug it into your computer. Um, I have not used one of those for many, many, many years. I just used to plug my camera straight into the computer. I figured one less thing to bring with me. It's a little bit more minimalist, a little easier. Um, now that I bought this really quite nice memory card reader, it makes my life so much easier. Holy cow, do I recommend it. And it's specifically this one because they have an attention to detail. It's blazingly fast and it's really easy to just bring my memory cards with me to dinner or to the lodge or wherever I'm processing and downloading my photos for the day, for the night, um, and not have to bring my whole camera set up. And it's awesome. Pro grade, highly recommend it. It is really, really great. So then that leads me to my memory card itself. Um, I have for my photography uh, a pretty hefty, I think a 256 gigabyte card in my camera that has a very, very fast read and write speed. And I'm not going to go into excruciating detail on the speeds of camera cards, but if you get the level three, it usually has a, a small U and then three, maybe three Roman numerals or actually three, the, the, the numeral itself, it's going to be your at least in today's day and age, in 2023, your super fast write and read speed, which allows you to do that burst photography of 10 frames a second at 40 megabytes a piece. Otherwise, if you get some of these bargain chips, some of these bargain memory cards, um, you run the risk of not being able to shoot at your maximum frame rate. And so you have this you know, be all end all wildlife sighting, the best you've ever seen. You're on burst mode and you capture 20 frames of this amazing moment and you find out that your memory card wasn't fast enough and only a quarter of them actually got downloaded in that time. Bad thing to realize when you're out in the field uh, at the start of a safari when you're going to have more and more experiences like that. So I recommend dropping the money on a better memory card. Don't get the cheapest one. Frankly, I do recommend getting one of the more expensive ones. They're going to last longer. They're going to be relevant longer. They're going to be a really, really good investment for your photography. This is a funny one. This is not a proprietary camera kit item, but it's something I found very, very helpful over the years. I always keep a coin in my camera bag, like a nickel or maybe some cool coin from another country, because oftentimes when I am switching between tripod mounts, this might be my own tripod mounts, or it might be a tripod that I'm borrowing when I'm in the field, or for whatever reason, I need to use something to unscrew a tripod mount from my camera. Some of them have quick release plates, and some of them have little bars that you can actually fold up and use as a, a torquing, twisting device. But sometimes it's just one of these little flathead screwdriver type screws, and you need something in there. And it's, it truly is shaped, I think, to fit a coin exactly. And so I just bring a little coin with me, and that way I can always have it on hand to unscrew tripod mounts when I'm in the field. So speaking of camera batteries, this is something that I want to come back to. So oftentimes when you get your camera, of course, good cameras, I think pretty much any camera is going to come with battery chargers for its battery. And we all know that every single camera make and model has a different battery and you end up acquiring quite a few different batteries over the course of your lifetime and quite a few different battery chargers. Um, throw all those battery chargers away. <laughs> My recommendation is try to get a third-party 
really good or really efficient battery charger. The one that I'm using right now, I wouldn't even say is really good. It's relatively inexpensive. It's made by a company called Wasabi Power. I had to buy a couple of new batteries and went on a limb and used Wasabi Power instead of Canon brand. A uh, little bit of a risk, but so far I'm happy with them. Uh, and it came with a charger and instead of this big clunky box that only charged one battery at a time, it's a small little disc less than a hockey puck that uses a normal Android USB charger and charges two batteries at a time. And I got to say, little things like that go such a long way with me because, you know, how often are you charging batteries when you just, you need to plug in your batteries before you go to sleep and you wake up and your batteries are charged in the morning? Well, if you can only charge one battery at a time, you really have to think a lot throughout the day is when you when you use, when you charge, how often you go back to your room, how often you have power. And so being able to charge two batteries at a time is honestly a game changer. So again, Wasabi Power is the name of the battery and the charger, and I highly recommend it. It's really made my, my battery game quite a bit better. And the final pro tip I have for you, this is gonna be related to charging and power, is getting a small little extension cord to bring with you in your camera bag. It might be a surge protector or it might just be one of those cheap little six foot white extension cords that have three little outlets at the end. But I've found having something that is indeed about six foot that has two, three, four outlets at the end is extraordinary. It's such a game changer. How often are you going to a hotel room and the one outlet is behind the nightstand that you can barely access and you're trying to charge your batteries, charge your phone, charge your laptop, uh, charge your flashlight, and you, you have to do this incredible musical chairs with your devices. Getting this charger not only allows you to have that extension cord, but it gets you those extra outlets so you can basically charge everything all at once. These things cost like six or seven dollars. They take up no space. So I never leave home without this. I never take it out of my camera bag. For all travel, I always have a six foot extension cord with about three extra outlets on the end. And it really helps keep my gear organized and it really helps keep all my stuff charged and me a little bit more sane. So there is a bit of a deep dive into all my camera gear. Maybe I don't bring all that with me each and every trip, but through these explanations hopefully understand why I have these, why I use them in certain situations, and also hopefully some of these pro tips and extra little things that I throw in my camera bag will help you be a more confident, better photographer, and make travel a little bit easier for you while getting out in the field and enjoying all there is to nature, wildlife, landscape, and travel photography. Until next time. <laughs>